We had a meeting here earlier this week, and I brought my own water supply and my Father's Day gift, and then left it here. So every day I would get up thinking, not Yeti, not Yeti, not Yeti, but now it's Yeti. Got it back. He thought I had water in it. It's a clear liquid, but it's vodka. Just kidding. <clears throat> Just kidding. So there was a Jewish man stranded on a desert, deserted tropical island. Now, if you've uh, heard the punchline, please don't blurt it out. <clears throat> he was there for many, many years. Finally, a rescue boat came and found him, and the captain spoke to him about his time on the island. The man showed the captain his home. He had fashioned a mezuzah out of coconuts. There was a bedroom, a small kitchen, an easy chair in the living room. He said, would you like to see my shul? Of course, replied the captain. So it was only a short walk to the synagogue. The man said, this is where I come to pray and to study. And it was nice. It, there was a pew and a bima, even a ron kodesh, in case a Torah were to ever float up onto the beach. Can I ask you a question, asked the captain. <clears throat> My men saw another structure like this one a little distance away. Can you tell me what that building was used for? He says, oh, that. That's the shul I never go to. Okay, that was the punchline. So from this little anecdote, you see that it was apparently important for this man not only to have a home and a shul, he attached some significant priority to have another shul, one that he could disdainfully say that he would never set foot in. Division among the Jewish people is nearly a proverb. You've probably heard it said, two Jews, three opinions. In this case, our Jewish man stranded on the island, you might even say one Jew, two opinions. Golda Meir, the fourth prime minister of the state of Israel from 1969 to 1974, once lamented, I am prime minister of a nation of prime ministers. Everybody knew how to do it better than her, right? But the purpose of my little anecdote is to highlight one of the points of my message today, that in the Messianic age, there will be unity among the Jewish people. So I have seven points to make, but first let me go back to the beginning. First, I want to thank Rabbi David and the elders here for entrusting me to speak today. If I say anything that is not consistent with the policies and teachings of the leaders of the congregation, then please shoot me. Well, if this were a congregation that I were just visiting, I could just say, eh, talk to them about it. But since I live here, just shoot me. 
But it does mean that you can speak to me. I am accountable to them. I will readily repent of any heresy or wrong teachings. I'll do whatever I have to do to make it right so that I can retain my membership in, in the perpetuity. So I'm honored to speak as an elder, but not a governing elder in any congregation at this time. Uh, I also serve as the regional director of the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations. Sherry and I moved to Richmond a year ago from Northern Virginia, where, as David pointed out, I served as a congregational elder for 19 and a half years. One of our sons lives here with his wife and three children. So when I retired from the federal government in April of 2018, yay, <clears throat> we finally had the flexibility to spend more time with them, as well as with our other son, who is a congregational leader for Ahava Yeshua, the Messianic Jewish congregation in Jerusalem. So we spend a good deal of our time in Israel with him, his wife, who is one of Dan Juster's daughters, and our four grandchildren there as well. So we are grateful to call Tikvat our home. I suppose there are many more things I could tell you about myself and my journey, but I'll only say one more thing about myself in order to introduce the message. About a year ago, just before we moved here, I woke up from a dream. So this was a literal dream. Not like MLK, he said he had a dream. I had a dream. It wasn't like his dream. This one was while I was asleep. So in my dream, I was in a large room, not a convention center, not an auditorium, not a worship hall. <clears throat> there was furniture in the room. All my friends from the UMJC were gathered in the nooks and crannies of the room, talking among themselves. Someone in the group that I was in says to me, Scott, why don't you give us your thoughts? I looked up, and I saw that everyone in the room had stopped talking. They were all looking at me. It was very intimidating. And while I was wondering what we had been talking about, wondering what I would say, Wondering whether I should just make a joke and let the moment pass by, or just point out that my thoughts aren't worth the penny that you might have paid for them. As the time passed in that state of bewilderment, like a deer in the headlights, and it seemed like any second someone would just shout out, shout out, oh, sit down, who the heck cares what he thinks? In that moment, I woke up. And I woke up knowing exactly what I was supposed to say, and that's what I'm going to tell you this morning. What is our purpose? What is it? It says in our bulletin that our vision is for hope, and the P stands for purpose. Why were we called into the kingdom of God by Yeshua? Why did he open our eyes to see him, invite us to know him, and make almost unimaginable promises to us about forgiveness and love, about eternal life and immortality? Was it so that we might be saved from our sins? Certainly this is important. Through his atoning death, we are forgiven. 
And by giving us his spirit, he has not only given us the desire to overcome the world and its temptations, but he has also given us the power to resist sin and learn to live holy lives. And as important as this is, it's not why we have been saved. Was it so that our marriages could be holy? Also important. We should be showing the sacrificial attitude that comes with marriage, serving one another, taking care of one another. Page three. Anybody remember Paul Harvey? Okay, never mind. You got to be old to remember Paul Harvey. Illustrating the love that Messiah has for his flock. But this is not our purpose. It's important, but not the ultimate reason why he brought us into the kingdom. Was it to raise godly children? Crucial. Training our children in the way they should go. Bringing them to faith. Training them to be self-sufficient. To be successful in their own lives. Correcting them in love. Imparting whatever wisdom we might have. No one can deny how vital this is, but it's not our primary purpose in the kingdom. What about our healthy congregation with solid, qualified leaders, programs for nurturing individuals and families, teaching and training in the ways of Yeshua, financially sound, doctrinally pure. I'm so grateful to be part of a congregation like this one. But it's not the reason we were called into Yeshua's kingdom. Our larger membership in the Messianic Jewish community is in the UMJC or in Tikkun. These organizations should be places where congregational leaders can learn, find wisdom from experienced men and women of God. Members can tap in as well. These organizations should also be healthy, doctrinally, financially, and with good reputations. And we should not neglect our duty to assure the success of these organizations that serve us in our congregations. But this is not why we were called into the kingdom. The reason Yeshua opened our eyes to see him, to receive him, to embrace him and serve him is that we are the remnant of his people. And it's our calling and purpose to serve our people on behalf of Yeshua to prepare them along with ourselves for Olam Haba, the age to come. I want to let that sink in for just a moment. You and I had our eyes opened by Yeshua to see the kingdom of God so that he would have a faithful remnant whose priestly role is to serve our people on behalf of the age to come. So this seems a valid question in every organization, every connection, every community, every circumstance where we find ourselves. How am I preparing myself and how are we preparing ourselves and our people for Olam Haba? I'll quickly give you my proof texts and then make my seven points and then I will sit down in my pew. In Romans 11, we find that regrafting of Jews into their own olive tree brings world redemption and life from the dead. 
Why is this? In Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, and also in Luke 13, verses 34 and 35, Yeshua says to Jerusalem, you will never see me again until you say, Baruch B'Shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Jewish people must somehow be prepared to welcome Yeshua or he will not come. And in Amos, Amos 9, verses 13 through 15, we read, Behold, days are soon coming. It is a declaration of Adonai. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treading and the one treading grapes, the one sowing seed. The mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will melt over. Yes, I will restore the captivity of my people, Israel. They will rebuild desolated cities and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will also make gardens and eat their fruit. Yes, I will plant them on their land, and they will never again be plucked up out of their land that I have given to them. Adonai, your God, has said it. In other words, we are to be plowing for the age to come, even as we overtake those who are reaping in the present age. So my seven points are from Ezekiel 37, verses 21 through 28. I will read through it, and even though I don't have an overhead for you, you can read along on your phones. That's what I do, right? Isn't that what you do? Actually, I'm going to read it from my Bible in this particular case. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, and they, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting, everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. 
So can we agree that this is a picture of Olam Haba, the age to come? I could give other proofs of this, but I think it's pretty well understood that this is not a picture of our present age. It's an age that is yet to come. The Messianic age. So everything we are reading about here in this, these, this section of Scripture is part of the good news of the kingdom that began when Yeshua was preaching that the kingdom of God is in your midst. And it will come to its fullness in Olam Haba. And there are seven elements that constitute this picture from Ezekiel, which, although they are distinct, are inextricably related to one another. And I'm just going to read them out in a summary, and then I'm going to talk about them. First, the people of Israel will live in their own land. Second, they will be one nation, never again divided into two kingdoms. They will be purified. Third, they will be purified from idolatry and transgression, transgressions and restored to Hashem. They will have one shepherd, the son of David, to be king over them forever. They will, five, they will walk in the ordinances and observe the rulings of Hashem. Six, Hashem will dwell with them forever in a covenant of peace. Seven, the nations will know that Hashem is the one who sanctifies Israel. Page five. And there's five and a little bit on six, so we're actually going to get out of here shortly. Sorry. If anyone wants to know that the God of Israel is alive, look at number one. Jewish people are living in their own land, Israel. One element of the good news for the Jewish people is that in Olam Haba, there is a connection between the people and their land, the land of Israel. Another element is the unity of the Jewish people. It's not that we won't disagree, but our disagreement will be mediated by the presence of a mediator, the man, Messiah Yeshua, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. First Timothy. Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said that the two trumpets of our Torah portion call out to the two types of people, those who are called together to protect themselves from a common enemy and those who are called together to bear witness of a common vision and purpose. Cannot we say that we have a common vision and purpose, all of us, to see Ezekiel 37 fulfilled on behalf of the Jewish people? Another element is the cleansing and purification from sin and transgression. This is such a mystery to many, and perhaps no one knows better than we, how to mitigate sin and transgression. There's repentance, of course, but it takes the power of the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, to avoid temptation and submit ourselves in obedience to our King. The fourth element, which interestingly is in the middle of the seven, is the king, the son of David. Ezekiel doesn't tell us how to identify him, but if you're hearing these words, you probably know him. 
Rabbi Paul Saul comments on our Haftorah portion concerning the trial of the high priest being accused by Hasatan. His filthy robes are taken away and he is given clean garments to wear. Then in Zechariah 3, verses 8 through 10, we read, Listen well, Joshua Kohen Gadol, both you and your companions seated before you, because they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone I have laid before Joshua is one stone with seven facets. On it I will engrave an inscription, declares Adonai Tzvaot, that I will remove the iniquity of this land in one day. In that day, declares Adonai Tzvaot, every man will invite his neighbor to sit under the vine and under the fig tree. Removing that iniquity will restore the unity because every man will sit with his neighbor. We see how the branch, this fourth element, touches every other element. The fifth element is a return to Torah, to the ordinances and rulings of Hashem. Obedience to the Torah comes as the law is written on our hearts. In Psalm 40, David declares, I delight to do your will, O my God. Yes, your Torah is within my being. This is the work of the Ruach on behalf of those who have received him. The sixth element is the ultimate restoration of the Garden of Eden, God dwelling among his people. His sanctuary will be in our midst, and he will dwell with us in a covenant of peace. Why peace? Because sin has been atoned for, the power over sin has been realized, and all the nations are coming under the subjection to the king of Israel. Finally, the seventh element is that the nations will know. Revelations 20, verse 3 says, He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He also threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short while. We love to focus on the central point that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of God. I believe also that the good news of the kingdom that has already come and that will come in fullness in Olam Haba, this good news is in every element of Ezekiel's message. We can rejoice that we are nearer to his return, since we see the land of Israel inhabited by Jews, Jews coming into increasing unity, Jewish lives being cleansed through the atonement and cleansing of the Ruach, an increasing desire by Jews for doing Torah. Did you know that Jews are coming to Torah now more than ever? They're, they're fleeing their secular lives and coming back to Torah Many Jews are flocking to Orthodox Judaism. It's not a bad thing. Torah is a good thing. Obeying his ordinances, a hunger for the presence of Hashem and his shalom, and the nations recognizing that God is working among his people. 
The only one I left out in this list was the Davidic King Yeshua, and I did that to make a point. We can fulfill our purpose in Yeshua by working with our people to prepare for the age to come, Yeshua's return, when we should be ready to support any reasonable effort to fulfill any of these elements. We can stand with the Lubavitches even in their zeal to see Jews perform mitzvot. We can stand with the Zionists in their zeal to see Jews thriving in the land of Israel. We can stand with efforts to establish unity among Jewish denominations and with secular Jews and with Jews from every background. We can stand with the nation of Israel when it seeks to provide aid to nations that have been devastated by natural disasters or seeks to share technological innovations with other nations. And we can stand with those who proclaim the Messiah Yeshua, the King of the Jews, and the Holy One of Israel, even if they don't fully understand Hashem's purposes for Israel and the nations. Today's Torah portion, when you erect, referring to the lamps of the menorah. It's just one short paragraph with Hashem speaking to Moses to tell Aaron that when he erects the lamps, they are to shine so as to illuminate the area in front of the menorah. This is followed by a sentence about the construction of the menorah according to the pattern that Hashem had shown Moses. And that's all there is about Baalotacha. And it seems kind of trivial. Uh, Moses, when you, uh, when you light the menorah, when you put the lamps up there, make sure it shines in front of the menorah. Why would he think ever to set the lamps so they would shine behind the menorah? I mean, who would do that? Why is he saying this? What does it mean to us? Well, I hope that for every deed we do, shouldn't have to say this, right? For every deed we do, and in every group or context where we find ourselves, let us be those who advocate for olam haba and for living our lives now in anticipation of the soon coming of Messiah. It's nearer now than it has ever been. Can we say amen? Thank you, David.